0: On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Sean from Vertico Cycles in Portland, Oregon. My name is Joe Roganbuck and I own and run Cobra frame building in Syracuse, New York. So I produce, you know, bike frame building tools like a tube bender that allows you to bend a wide variety of tubes smoothly in a small package. I have uh, brazing clamps and mitering tools and things that help you make bike frames. And I got a whole bunch of new stuff that'll be coming out in the future. Uh, just as soon as I can get things uh, finished and, and produced. I also do a YouTube channel and I do this podcast just about every week and um, this week, my guest is Sean Cheney from Vertigo Cycles in Portland, Oregon. So he's been building bikes for over 10 years, and he makes pretty much completely, he just makes titanium mountain bikes. And they're super refined. So, you know, uh, like attention to detail and sort of like meticulous care and craftsmanship is something that you could associate with most frame builders to one degree or another. For sure, it's, uh, you know, it's just kind of how it is. You know, people don't become frame builders to half-ass it. Uh, but he is definitely up there in, uh, you know, the higher echelons of people who really uh, sweat the small stuff and go the extra mile to get all the details just so. And uh, and it shows in his work. So it's cool to talk to him about process and um, and the stuff that he does. He's made a fair amount of his own tools for frame building. And so, of course, we had to talk about that some. Uh, you know, he's been interested in luthery, which is, you know, like making instruments. So he's made a he's made a guitar and, uh, I think a couple guitars in his shop with, you know, like with, with metalworking tools, uh, uh, which is really cool, Uh, you know, wood guitars, but using a milling machine, like a planer or something. Right. And that hitting those tolerances that machinists are used to hitting. So, uh, I used to play guitar quite a bit and, um, I've always liked the objects, you know, of my hobbies, like photography and playing guitar and riding bikes. I've always really liked the things and, been been a nerd about the the stuff but i've never made a guitar and so i had to talk to him about uh, his process and his thoughts and uh, i think it's really cool to make stuff period not just bikes so we talked a little bit about guitars uh where i cut into the interview here i had asked him you know about his history with frame building getting started uh with frame building when he sort of took those first big steps taking a frame building class you know getting some tools and getting set up how did that go and what was that history
1: yeah um I was kind of a late bloomer, I guess. Uh, I, the first bunch of jobs I had were basically just because I thought I was supposed to find a good way of making my way through the world. And um, I had some good jobs and some not good jobs. But the, the I guess the thing was that in 2006, it was just sort of the the timing of everything that was happening in my life at that time just really worked out. And uh, I hadn't been married for a year at that point, and was trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, and my wife was super supportive, so I just went ahead and went for it. But <clears throat> excuse me, at that time, I was a financial analyst um, working for a contractor to the Navy, mm-hmm. and we had moved from D.C. to Portland in 2005 right after we got married. And uh, I I gave my resignation and my customer at the navy yard was like hey just work remotely so i did that for about a year and there was like a 95% turnover rate in my department and wow. they gave me an ultimatum either move back to dc or you know basically goodbye and my wife just got a teaching job at the school where she wanted to teach and she had just finished grad school and uh you know moving back to the east coast after only having been on the west coast for a year just you know especially going from Portland to DC because at least almost 15 years ago, Portland was still really cool. And, uh, DC is great, but you know, it's just, it's too busy. Yeah. So, um, an opportunity came up, there was a frame builder in Arizona. Um, and I had a really good friend in Chandler at that time. And it was like, you know, a few miles from where this guy lived. Uh, so I can't remember if it was a one week or two week class. I think it was maybe a week long class. I went out and took a class with a guy and um, it was kind of terrible <laughs> and I built an absolutely hideous bike and I was super discouraged and I got home and I was, I was so mad and like the cranks wouldn't even fit on it oh, wow. because the, the chainstays were too wide. And so I remember I was just wailing on him with a sledgehammer in the garage <laughs> just to try to make room. And, um, but something clicked and I felt like a huge failure. And I was, I just thought that there was no possible way that I was going to let this be the way it was going to end. So um, I, I used a bunch of money that I had saved up and bought some machines and bought a welder and just tried to make a go of making some frames. And uh, the first, you know how it is, the first like five or 10 Aren't great, but they're always getting better. And then uh, you find friends who want them, and kind of sell them cheap to your friends. And just that's kind of how it all got started.
0: Yeah. And so you were building in titanium pretty much exclusively from the start. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Right away.
0: Yeah. And that was yeah. just you had experience with a titanium bike or two that you really liked, and and so it was just kind of where you wanted to go with things.
1: Yeah. Um, definitely. Back. I don't even know when it was. It was like 94, maybe. I, uh, I got a WTB Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And um, I was also really big into riding trials at the time. And I was looking at getting a trials bike and uh, the options weren't great. So I just decided to turn my Phoenix into a trials bike. Um, and I, I was just going to buy another one to replace it, basically.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I, I called up WTB and Steve Potts answered the phone. <laughs> and I was kind of starstruck for a minute. Yeah. And uh, he was like, "Oh, you know, if you really like that bike, uh, I'm building a batch of titanium ones now. I'll just let me get your name. I'll put you on a list. And if you want one of those, then uh, you can have one." So I was like, "Yeah, definitely, I want to do that." And it was a couple months later, I got you know one of the first. I don't know how many there were, like ten or fifteen Thai Phoenixes that he built. Wow. And it was awesome. I mean, like all oh, the tubes were bigger i loved how the just just the what it looked like you know it, it rode great and it was amazing and you know that all it it should all that stuff aside looking at that in in between that and the steel one i like this the straight stays you know like the the, the stays weren't tapered mm-hmm. it just seemed beef beefier to me
2: <laughs> and
1: yeah. i always loved that bike and you know there are, uh, stuff is stuff i try not to get super attached to objects but that and maybe two guitars are the only things that i've ever owned and sold and regretted it.
0: yeah yeah i have a guitar that i bought when i was 15 and i i play it like once a year but i will never sell it because it is yeah you know i understand that yeah yeah, it's especially if it's like a nice thing and if it's a thing that you can you know, like you can ride like a ride like a bike or play like a guitar or something, it's it's pretty easy to create those sort of sentimental attachments that don't logically make any sense, but uh you yeah. get, get attached to it, yeah.
1: Yeah. I've I've always tried to not get those types of sentimental attachments.
0: Mm-hmm. just
1: because it's it's just too easy to hang on to stuff and I, you know probably like a lot of other people I went through a period in my life where if it didn't fit in my Volvo it, it wasn't worth owning <laughs> so I had everything like compact enough that I could fit everything that I cared about you know in or on my car mm-hmm. and that way I felt like I never had to worry about anything
0: yeah yeah um And then with titanium, you know, from, so when you build with titanium, there's a lot of things that make it complicated, I guess, which is, you know, part of why it's interesting that you started in titanium and you built almost exclusively in titanium, uh, you know, you can't always, there's not a whole lot of options for pre-bent tubes or, you know, butts and tapers and all that stuff that you might want to make the bikes just your own way. And so especially tube benders are pretty important to have, uh, but also just being able to shape your own tubes and stuff, uh, but, you know, you learned to deal with that pretty early on, pretty immediately, because not only were you building in titanium, but you were building, you build mostly titan- or mostly mountain bikes, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, you, you know, you can get away with like a road bike. You can almost, depending on the geometry and the tire size, you can almost build with straight tubes, but <laughs> you can't build a yeah. single mountain bike with straight tubes unless you're welding a whole bunch of different pieces together with angled cuts or something, which nobody does. Yeah. And, you yeah.
1: know. I uh, have yeah, plenty of people have done that. Um, and that, yeah, the, the bending thing was a really big challenge early on because there just wasn't anything available. Yeah. You know, especially specifically for bike tubing, I think that's where it comes in. Cause you know, I, I did end up with a JD squared bender mm-hmm. and, um, you know, I just went through tons and tons of money, uh, you know, worth of, of seven eighths tubing, just kinking them up.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: like, why isn't this working? Oh, it's cranked it tighter, let's try it again. Oh, it kinked it again. Um, let's try like modifying the buck a little bit. And uh, and I just realized that like none of the support in that particular tool is in the place where it needs to be successfully bent a tube. At, yeah. least, at least at the radius you want. Like if you want to bend a 7 eight tube with the J-U-square bender, you got to have like the eight and a half inch die to make that work.
0: Because mm-hmm. any um, tighter center probably, line radius would would kink it. Is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I I think I just got like a ball end mill and uh, just ran my own sort of tube support and got rid of the buck that they were using.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and just found it, it was like really scrapped together, but it worked. And I I think it was a five and a half inch CLR mm-hmm. on the first bikes I was doing maybe that was it um and you know they weren't great and that that bender doesn't have uh, you know it, there's a there's sort of like a, a vernier on it um or like a you know like an angular scale on it and um but you know with the pointer it's kind of wiggly and sometimes you accidentally bump it and then it was just on there magnetically so you know good luck trying to get right back to that spot yeah um and so the just were consistent and I think I invited myself over to the vanilla shop because Sasha had uh, a prototype that um, Don from Anvil had built
2: for mm-hmm. days,
1: and I went to go take a look at that. And and there was this really great resource when I started. Um, the local community college offered these like intro to machining classes, and it was held at a high school just just down the road for me. Oh, cool! And I think it was a. 185 bucks for, you know, it was, it was one night a week, but it went through the entire semester. And basically you sit through some some safety talks, but other than that, you know, three hours a week, you had access to the shop and you can do whatever you wanted.
0: That's great. And they had
1: like three bridge ports and rotary tables and like five big engine lathes. And they even had grinders and plasma cutters and they had all this amazing stuff. And the coolest thing, was not the instructor, this guy, Pete Marr, had been teaching at that high school since the 70s.
2: Wow. And he
1: had kept a running list of all the material he had ever purchased and what it cost. Wow. And he said, but, you know, I'm not here, I'm I'm here to teach everybody. I'm not here to make a profit. You know, this isn't really uh, gonna do anything. If you wanna buy any material that we have in this kit, it has like a, like a locking cage to keep all the stuff. Um, just point to it and I'll look it up and you'll you pay whatever I paid for it whoa so I got this hunk of it was like 12 by 12 by 2 inch thick sixty sixty one plate that he had bought in the 80s and <laughs> for like 20 cents a pound for, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so I just like basically ripped it into three different pieces in the band saw uh-huh. and made some bending guys that's awesome and um just kind of like went did as much as I could and they work pretty well, and then you know, as as kind of as always the case, I make something that takes me a really long time, and then like a week later, somebody offers something for sale that works perfectly <laughs> and looks a lot better. Yeah, and uh, and that's when because I've been bugging Don to make um, the bending dies again, and, uh, so basically as soon as I finished building on these dies, he was like, "Hey, why don't I send you one of these prototype vendors and you know test <laughs> it out for me and let me know."
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: And within the first week, I was like, hey, man, you should put the holes in the base so that they line up with the, the T-slots in a bridge port. And he was like, that's a great idea. I think they've been that way ever since. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I remember um, I knew that about the anvil one, that it had the bolt hole spacing for the probably five inch on center for the T-slots in a yeah. bridge port table. And so uh, my tube bender in my own shop, I had it mounted on my bridge port. Uh, differently, but like the, the tube that supports it, I was like, yeah, that's a really good place to put it. Like on the edge of your bridge yeah. port table, it's just a really convenient spot. And then I made mine with these sort of quick release handles so you could real quickly, it only weighs 40 pounds. So you pick it up and you know, get it out of the way if you're actually using the bridge port or something, but
1: really good spot to yeah, put it tube bender... The- Yours is awesome because <laughs> everything is like fully captured. You know, you're not really putting any leverage on the thing at all.
0: Yeah, well, but yeah, unlike cause... the anvil
1: one. Because mm-hmm. with, with the anvil one, you got a four foot long bar, mm-hmm. and uh, if if you try to bend like seven eighths, forty five wall tubing on there, you can probably come pretty close to tipping over your bridge port. Yeah. Well, if, I knew that pulling it the wrong way.
0: I had talked to Drew at engine cycles about his seat tube bending that he was doing with inch and three eighths titanium. And, uh, yeah. you know, he, so he was having a conversation with me a couple of years ago about that and, and the rigmarole that he was doing to bend that. And I thought about it quite a lot. I remember I had a job where I was a CNC machine operator for a couple months and I would sit there on this CNC lathe job that had like a 20 minute cycle and I had a sketchbook, and I was just drawing this tool, and I was like, well, if I use a hydraulic ram, it would be good for this, but it'd be bad for that, and at some point, yeah. it crossed my mind to use a lead screw, and I was like, well, if I could make that work, that'd be really pretty sweet, and so I played with that, and it, it works pretty good, and uh, and yeah, it's it's great, because the, the bending forces are self-contained, so, you know, if you have five-eighths, tubes or three quarter or seven eighths, you know, you can usually do those in a manual bender configuration. You just really need to mount it to something heavy. But if you need to do tubes that are heavier than that, or if you're doing heavier wall titanium or something, it really becomes difficult. And then, you know, you look at a lot of the other benders, like a like a diacra number six or something, like a big hydraulic bender, they're just they're massive and they're very expensive and they're very, very heavy. And um, so, you know, the the beauty of mine is that, yeah, it's this small package. It's pretty lightweight, and yet it can bend a pretty monster tube. You know, you can do inch and five-eighths with mine, which is kind of crazy. Like a a couple people use that for titanium down tubes on a a mountain bike.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I I went through this phase of trying to adapt the the, uh, JD squared bender to do inch and three-quarter down tubes. Holy crap! And I can't remember what the sale. Yeah, it, it just there some somewhere way way back in my Flickr or Instagram or depending on I can't remember the days. It's hard to remember what happened before Instagram, but like Flickr <laughs> was the thing. Yeah, it was. But um, I definitely have a bunch of pictures of completely ruined inch and three, inch <laughs> and three quarter down tubes from trying to get that thing to work. And it's just it was no go and honestly um i have I have a folder on my computer with like hundreds of ideas that I never took anywhere uh like in solidworks models and and the the sort of functionality of your bender is something that I had been wanting to do for a long 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 time, and the the way that you went about it was way more awesome than the way i was going to go about it well thanks i I appreciate that i like the little like tronion mount you have on there and and the way you executed that is really cool yeah
0: i think you know when i'm honest with people about the biggest limitations of my bender it's just the 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 degree of bend that you can achieve i think if you're doing like something like a like s-bend seat stays for a fat bike where you need that upper bend around the tire to really wrap hard around the tire and get back to the seat tube you can, right. there there are, there are certainly designs where you can exceed the amount of bend that you could get with my bender. And I think that that's like most, most bike applications, just about every tube of like 90 or 95 or maybe more percent of the bikes that you would see at a show like nabs, like it can do, Yeah. you know, it can't do unicrown forks really, but like it can do just about everything else. But like, there are a couple applications where the the degree of bend, you might run up against it. And so like, Apart from that, there's just not much that I can say that I wish I had done better. And I'm, I'm proud of that because it's, you know, in the same package, you can do stays and you can do main tubes and you can you can really do a lot of stuff.
1: And uh, oh, yeah, it's awesome. I definitely took a good look at it because one thing I want to change the way I'm doing are seat tubes. Um, and I I can't remember what the biggest CLR was on your bender for inch it's three nine. Tubes, but Yeah. 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 And so if you want to have like
0: a concentric sort of bend on the seat tube to the rear wheel that you can't achieve on my bender either. Yeah. Because that that's more of a stylistic thing and it looks really cool. Uh, I was thinking a little bit more like the the sort of, you know, worst case scenario of a small frame with a long dropper post. You want to have a low tight bend and it'll do that. (laughs) But if you want to have that big flowing radius.
1: But that's going to depend on the length of the dropper. Right. Yeah. You know. Like you said, but even, even with the the stuff I'm doing now, I think mine's a seven and a half inch CLR and I put that, that kink essentially like six or so inches above the bottom bracket and Mm -hmm. haven't had a problem with the dropper yet.
0: Yeah. No, I think in most Um, cases you wouldn't, you know, it's just that sort of that worst case of like this super long dropper and a small frame.
1: Right. Well now that, you know, they're getting to be like 200 millimeters, which is great. Yeah. I want to try one of those. Uh, um, oh, geez, I can't remember the name of it now. It's some German company makes it so that it's integrated to the frame. Oh, wow. I've been lo- looking at that for a couple of years because there was another, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great if, and then of course this company makes it. So um, I, I was chatting with one of my customers the other day, or it was emailing with one of my customers the other day. And I was like, hey, why don't we think about this for the next bike? Because mm-hmm. I think it'd think be really cool. So, One thing
0: that I know a little bit, I don't know that much about it, but I know that you had uh, some amount of uh, a hand in developing the EC44, the external cup 44 headset standard, you know? So like if you have, for anyone listening who's not familiar with the technical spec, uh, the, you know, like inch and an eighth to inch and a half fork, like you would see on a carbon fork or on a mountain bike suspension fork nowadays. So many frame builders use a 44 millimeter lower Press-in aluminum cup headset, and so so that became a thing sometime around 2010, roughly. And you had a hand in yeah. pushing that that standard with Cane Creek and some other people. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, oh, the, in the for Nabs in 2008, which was here in Portland, I think that's when Chris King launched their. Uh, what were they calling just the inset? I think it was at the time, which was honest. I mean, if we're being honest, it was, they had one called Perdido way back in the mid to late nineties. And it was, it was the exact same thing. Maybe the dimension was a little bit different, but the concept was exactly the same, except I don't think the Perdido ever saw the light of day. Um And so as a way to get people to sort of adopt the the inset, they gave out a few head tubes. And at that time, maybe it was Fisher had a deal with Fox. And uh, that was, if I'm remembering correctly, that was right about when the tapered steerer thing started. Um, and it, it, to me, it made a lot of sense, especially because, you know, 29ers were full on popular at that time. And I remember being like a, a guy in a shop and maybe the mid, late nineties. And, I think Marzocchi and Manitou, they making that 1.5 standard so they could get longer travel single-crown forks.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway,
1: so, like, in 2009, this would have been, like, the beginning of 2009, I thought, you know, I really want to get one of those tapered deterioration forks because I'm kind of a bigger guy, and, you know, mountain biking is definitely my, my favorite way to enjoy riding a bike. Mm-hmm. And the fork it had was maybe a five inch travel fork and breaking hard right before a turn a fork was all over the place. And I really wanted to know if that the paper steer thing was really going to do anything for me. And there was no way in hell I was going to go out and buy a Fisher. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, I saw somebody at King at a cyclocross race and I was like, Hey, I have this idea for, you know, use that same 44 millimeter cup skirt and stick a 1.5 bearing in the outside and just, you know, obviously size the cup. And he dismissed it right away and was like, no, that's that's never going to work. It's not going to fit. This tapered steer is never going to catch on. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think you're wrong. I've already solid modeled it and it definitely fits. And (laughs) it's also a great idea. (laughs) And uh, so I'm going to go call somebody else now. So um, I... Started to I, At that time, like right in that same week even, there's an aerospace company out near me that did a run of uh, like highly intricately machined titanium parts that were going in some helicopter.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: they had milled a, a little pocket in it that wasn't supposed to be there. And they brought me all these parts and said, hey, can you fill, basically just fill this in so we can remachine them? Oh yeah, and uh, yeah. So you know, I did all that work, and I was like, "Hey, I got a machining job. Um, you know, maybe a small production run of some things." And I basically gave gave them a solid model, and then they gave me a quote, and it just about fell over. <laughs> and I realized that those guys are way more serious machinists than I'll ever be.
2: Uh huh.
1: Um, and so instead of making them myself, which kind of which is kind of what I wanted to do, I started calling all my builder buddies and saying like hey guys like i have this I have this idea you know if i can get a small production run would you be interested in getting some of these things and i kind of got the same thing I was like no don't, we don't, let's just see how this is going to go we don't know where we're <clears throat> excuse me we don't know where we're going to get head tubes um you know we don't know where to even buy the tubing and so I was like oh man i need to go back and i started researching what kind of tubing was available mm-hmm. and uh there really wasn't any and i found that like it was like 1.5 schedule 40 pipe was the closest thing to the size that we would need. And it was a little bit undersized. I think, I think the OD on that pipe was like 1.9 inches. So it was enough to work. It wasn't great. And so I was like, all right, I'm um, armed with more information.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to start calling more people. And I called more builders and it just wasn't getting anywhere. And I called Moots and you know, Moots was like, yeah, it's a good idea, but we don't really know how we're going to work it into our thing. And then, um, they said, you should call Dave Turner at Turner. And so I called him. He was like, Oh my God, I'll call you back. And he hung up right away. And then he called me back like 10 minutes later. And he said, this is such an awesome idea. It's solving a problem that I've been trying to work out for you know the last six months. Um, I'm going to put you in touch with somebody at King Creek and, uh, He's like, that was it, this is great. So he did. And those guys had a prototype for me in like a week and a half, two weeks. hmm And I was I was just super excited to to have it, to have it out in the world. And, um maybe that was two thousand nine, is that something right? Is that when the NAVs was in Austin? I don't remember which years the they were,
0: times? but yeah, I think it was around then.
1: Oh, you know, it was after that. It was uh, it was it was 2009 when this happened because the whole deal was um this was happening like i want to say February or March and uh there's a you may know of him or maybe not there's this guy John Meredith and um everybody should know who he is mm-hmm. right? because i don't mom, think I he's know just him. an awesome he's so he goes by um his online thing is Velopest oh okay yeah you had built and, a bike uh,
0: for him a little while ago right
1: Yeah. I built a bunch for him over the years, but, um, but he's, yeah, I I could say a lot of really nice things about him and he'll probably hear this and be really embarrassed, but he's, (laughs) he's just an awesome guy. He's a great writer. He's done a lot of good stuff. He's, he's kind of like me and then he just gets so deep in the weeds on Mm -hmm. the things that he really enjoys. Yeah. But that's how, I think that's how good ideas come out. So, this was in 2009 I had this prototype and he called me from Scotland and I guess he had seen some stuff that I was doing in Flickr, and you know, it was weird enough for him to like. And so I built him a bike and he was supposed to come over and pick it up at sea otter. And it was the year that, that volcano in Iceland, I won't even try to pronounce it, but it grounded all the air traffic in Europe for a few weeks, I think. Wow. And uh, he wasn't able to make it. So the whole idea was that, you know, King Creek made me this prototype. They were supposed to, at least I was told that they were going to line up some interviews to, with some bike magazines to get the idea out and, you know, to try to make it a popular thing in the world. And we're going to hang out with some buddies and John was going to come get his bike and none of that stuff worked the way it was supposed to. But this cool new headset kind of came alive in the market and it, it you know it didn't take long before it was just it was just everywhere
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know and it it didn't take very long for paragon to start making head tubes that worked with it and um i'm i'm totally proud of it mm-hmm. and i love the problem that it solved and it's still the easiest way in my opinion for us metal bike builders to cram a tapered steer fork Um, uh yeah so so by
0: that time there were at least a handful of options for inch and an eighth inch and a half tapered forks and so that was that was the reason that you wanted to get this headset and there were different like inset headset bearings that you could buy but there were no yeah there were no cups and head tubes and bearings that you could just buy off the shelf that would allow you to do the aluminum cup pressed into a titanium head tube
1: yeah, so if you wanted to do it, you I would have had to machine uh, an actual tapered head tube. Oh yeah. And what that means for me, just being a person who builds entirely in titanium, is that I have to buy this massive Honda six four. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was just doing it today. I just made a small thing out of six four. Um, you know, it's bike related, but it's not my my bikes related. But um, I was making essentially like a riser plate. Or, you know, uh, a replacement for the, for the base plate just to lift the front end up by, like, eight millimeters. So I was like, God, oh, I got the scrap of 6.4. And, God, it takes so long <laughs> to machine 6.4 manually, especially if you're trying to get away with not using coolant because you have a teeny tiny shop mm-hmm. and all that mist gets everywhere. Yeah. So, I got to clean my tubes and weld in the same shop. So, this is, like, a no coolant, very limited, you know, oil yeah kind of machining situation Mm -hmm. um so the idea of trying to bore you know a taper in a five inch long hunk of six four Mm
2: -hmm. especially
1: then i i just had this little uh south bend heavy 10 lathe that there was no way that would have taken me all day maybe two days Mm -hmm. to do and i would have burned up so many tools yeah and probably caught my shop on fire because titanium if you're not using coolant just likes to catch fire (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah, not to mention uh, cutting those long, shallow tapers on a manual lathe is is hard enough to begin with.
1: Yeah, 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 especially because that's that's the least rigid kind of way to move the lathe if you don't have a taper attachment, and Mm -hmm. it's hard to get a good surface finish.
0: Yeah, yeah, so many issues presented there. Yeah, okay, so that makes sense to me then why, because it's funny, you know, I I wasn't building bikes uh, really on my own until 2012, and I didn't build a... 44 millimeter head tube bike until maybe four or five years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I was kind of growing up in an era where that stuff was more accessible and something that was kind of interesting to me is on this most recent mountain bike that I've been building for YouTube videos and, you know, been building it in my shop, but to create YouTube content, um, uh someone had uh, peter verdone had suggested that i do 49 millimeter i think lower headset so that i could i could do an angle set since the point of the bike is kind of to learn or that's part of the point of the bike is to learn from it and so i was like yeah you know maybe that's worth trying and so i looked into it for like a minute and then i realized that you either couldn't get the reamer from park tool or it was like way more expensive or I don't remember what it was there was some there was some or no you couldn't get a good head tube from Paragon either it was just like yeah. it was like almost like the situation that you're describing where it's like you see a possible benefit to doing it a different way but then you look into the practicality of it and it's like never mind oh yeah <laughs> never
1: mind it, it would be a lot more cost effective just to build another frame yeah. with a different head tube angle yeah and with, so like uh, 44 millimeter head tube
0: Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, I have, I have a lathe and I can make things and I, you know, whatever, I I could get it done, but I was like, there's nothing wrong with the, the 44 millimeter. It just doesn't provide you that option to to change the angle. And that's not really my first concern, although it would be cool. I guess I try to really slack head angle. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, being able to change that a little
1: bit would be interesting, but yeah, I, I think that is, I think we're, you know, looking at it trying to be objective because i st- i still love mountain biking i'm I'm 45 i've been riding mountain bikes since the late 80s and i still i love it so much and I, I sort of felt like or at least you know in hindsight when it was like you know 2000 2001 looking back on what we all kind of went through in the 90s mm-hmm. you know it sort of felt like the golden age of mountain biking but all these you know, all these american machine companies we're making this amazing and beautiful colorful stuff that didn't work very well. Um, But right now, you know, the way that geometry is shifting and suspension is just getting better and better and better. Disc brakes are getting better. You know, the whole one by thing, which is something I've been pushing for so long, like decades, and uh, it makes so much sense. And now that the, you know, Shimano and SRAM have gone absolutely nuts with the gearing in, a, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the bikes are amazing now. Yeah. Like, it's the technology in a bike and not just custom bikes. You can go to a, uh, you know, a bike shop and buy an amazing bike. They're just phenomenal. Yeah. And this whole change in uh, the more progressive geometry, there really is something to it. Yeah, it's kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to be a luddite when you hear about some new tech standard or whatever, and say, I got to get more dummy axles," or "I got to figure out this yeah. thing." Or it's easy to feel that way. But then it's like, who wants to be riding a mountain bike from 2002? Like, you know, nobody, unless yeah. you have a nostalgic connection to it. Absolutely, nobody wants to be riding a one of those bikes. <laughs> Just skinny tires. Oh, I totally and,
1: agree. Yeah. Well, which it, it, it cracks me up. You know, like, there's all these uh, vintage mountain bike clubs, and people go nuts, you know, trying to build like period correct, vintage mountain bikes, you know, from the '80s and '90s. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I mean, in a way, I look at that and it's like, oh, that's really cool because now we're all adults and you know, presumably have decent jobs, and now you can afford all the stuff that like maybe we couldn't afford when we were in our 20s, when was, when you know, like Grafton was making cranks that. Completely fell apart after <laughs> under a year, but you know it's that stuff was so cool. And uh, but God, if you if you're like, all right, you can have one bike, you know, something that is current or this thing that you left it after when you were 21. I'm gonna choose current
0: mm-hmm. every single
1: time because that's what I want to ride. Just because it makes riding more fun. You know, makes it easier. You can go faster with a higher margin of safety, and it's just they're just better. Yeah. Um. So yeah, all that vintage stuff is a little bit lost on me, although I do think it is really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely understand it. And like for me, I want to talk about guitars a little bit because you've been you've been playing around with luthery. But you know, when I was in high school, I just I don't know why. I guess it was all my favorite guitar players. I had a real big thing for like late 80s early 90s shredders you know and they all played these Ibanez (laughs) made in Japan the sort of super strat the Ibanez RG and so I had a couple of those and I still have the one I'll never sell it but I just have such a weird nostalgia for these and now like if I ever do get out my guitar I'm not even trying to do that anymore and like the guitar is really not ideal for the kinds of things that i would do but like i just i just kind of love it too much and so it's kind of funny it's just it's weird how we have these attachments to things um but i did want to talk some about Mm -hmm. luthery, which is you know making instruments and guitars and things and you've made uh at least like one sort of telecaster kind of guitar uh in your shop
1: yeah
0: and i don't know if you made
1: more than that or was it was that it I have a lot more. No, I have a lot more that is currently that are currently in progress. Okay. And I have I have some other stuff that I can't openly talk about because it's a surprise for somebody. But oh, um, cool. There's a lot of that stuff that's going to be you know peeking out over the next couple of years. And yeah. that you know that was another thing that I wanted to do for years and years and years. And I never fancied myself a woodworker at all because I don't I don't ever do it. Mm -hmm. uh but again it was just one of these things that um it was last august i was out riding and uh i had the most massive wreck of my life um and i basically went from 20 to zero in an instant You i hit a rock and just you know came off it was just this kind of stupid not even anything cool i wish it was but it was you know just some bad stuff happened and uh I got really hurt. I broke my shoulder blade. I got a grade three shoulder separation. Um, I got two bulging discs in my back. I got a partially torn labor in my hip. And I didn't know for six weeks that I also broke my arm. Um, And so I I couldn't, I couldn't work basically uh, because I only have a one mil and my rotary table doesn't live on there permanently. And it weighs like a hundred pounds plus my mill is a, I'm, I'm actually getting somewhere with this, but um, the mill is a vertical horizontal combination. you actually, there's like, there's a, the vertical head is about hundred pounds and you got to slide it off of these big dovetails to put it in horizontal mode, mm-hmm. which is how I to roll my tubes. And I just, I just couldn't do any of that. And so after a few months of basically everything getting stitched back together and healing and PT, um, you know, it was it was in the middle of winter and I was going kind of stir crazy. Um, cause I, you know, I couldn't, I still couldn't ride. I, I couldn't ride until like April of this year,
2: mm-hmm. but,
1: uh, I still couldn't ride. I couldn't build bikes, you know, I couldn't really do much, but I thought that that is something that I could do. You know, I could take a hunk of wood, you know, glue, glue a couple pieces of it together, grab a hand plane and make it into something. And, um, you know, so it wasn't all like that, obviously, cause I, I used my mill for, uh, like flattening the neck and flattening the fretboard, and mm-hmm. um I just kind of use it as a work table but uh basically, I just sort of took the same approach that I take with building bikes, which is just to well at least at the beginning, which is just to stare at it for like a week, <laughs> try to try to imagine all of the things that like what am I most likely to screw up, you know what what are the things that are important to keep a really tight talent um, where I really need to focus and make sure that all this is going to be right? Um, what is the the handwork that I'm most unfamiliar with that probably has, you know, that's where I'm going to make most of the mistakes. And, uh, and just go, you know, just do as much as I could because at the time I could only, you know, I could plane stuff for like 15 minutes before my shoulder was frozen.
2: Mhm.
1: Um, and I just did a little bit every day for like a few months and you know, at the end I, I had a guitar, and it doesn't suck. It's actually for, I think for a first time build like, probably pretty good even. It looks really nice. But you know you, you, I'm sure you've seen a lot of bikes if you've gone to a bike show. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of bikes that look really good like from Instagram pictures yeah, or, yeah. you know, when you're 20 feet away and then you get close and you're like, Oh yeah, this, the seat stays got land in the same place on the back of the seat tube. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more clearance on one side of the tire than there is on the other yeah, side. Yeah, getting and,
0: a wheel to the center is not easy for the amateur. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And so the guitar, you know, it's not quite like that. And honestly, the, the biggest, the most challenging thing by miles and miles and miles that I never would have guessed it was finishing. Oh yeah. Like I I thought for sure that the most difficult part was gonna be the fretwork. and it absolutely wasn't. And I think that just going into it with the mindset of like, you know, I know I know what tolerance stack is, you know, because you have all these different layers of things that you you got the neck, you glue on a fretboard, you got frets that are going on top of it.
2: Mm -hmm. It'll
1: have to be radius correctly. And I think just being aware of that um, because of because of what I do, you know, with bikes, uh, I think maybe your average person doing it for the first time without the sort of mechanical experience maybe yeah. wouldn't think yeah about without it. thinking
0: like a machinist and using uh, you know, yeah micrometer and digital calipers that read to a half
1: thousandth of <laughs> an inch <laughs> yeah exactly because that was my goal right so to hit half a thou on every important tolerance item was totally my goal and there's there's a web forum i think it's called TVPRI, and they have a they have a subsection that is like you know people like me they're doing their first guitar or for luthiers and people could ask questions and um i didn't really ask any questions but you know i looked at that stuff for like six months before i even started because mm-hmm. you know what else could i do i couldn't, I couldn't lift <laughs> any finger move much um so i read a whole lot about it and uh and then i started you know, just sort of to catalog what I was doing just because a lot of times I forget what I've done before. And so it's nice to be able to go back to Flickr or Instagram or, you know, to a forum where you've shared what you've done. You're like, oh yeah, this is how I accomplished this.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I have to
1: reinvent the wheel. And it was just funny because people were saying that like, oh, you have, you don't need to be that precise. You know, it's, cause you can make it all up when you level the frets, but I was thinking like, but if you are that precise, maybe I don't have to level the frets.
0: Yeah. It just you know, makes like, everything down the line easier too.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, that's actually exactly what happened. I think there, I had, I had two frets that were high by like a foul. Wow. And I literally just took them down and then the whole neck was, was just perfectly straight. Mm hmm. And, and, um, it was really weird because I I felt like you ever have something go so well that you don't trust it, (laughs) you know, like this happened exactly the way I envisioned it. And Mm -hmm. there's always something that goes wrong. So what am I missing?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I remember
0: you posted something at some point about chip out where you were, or maybe it was on a more recent thing, something where, you know, there was, you know, because when you're cutting wood and there's a, there's a grain to it that uh, if your cutting tool isn't sharp enough or if the wood isn't supported just right, then you, know, you can get the material to fragment and chip away, and, which is just funny because yeah. that's, that's something that can't really happen when you're cutting titanium. You have all sorts of other, yeah. other things to be concerned about, but <laughs> it's just kind of funny. It's like um, the things that you're familiar with, you know, like holding tight tolerances, are, are not that much of a challenge. And then there's you know, new challenges.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like paint, man. Yeah. Never, never in a million years would I have guessed that that would have been as hard as it is. Yeah. And, and uh, my, I have a good buddy who does a lot more woodworking than I do and he he really gave me a hard time about it. But, you know, I don't know how normal I am (laughs) compared with everyone else in the world, but all I can say is my expectations for myself are really, really high. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, I know that I, I can never sort of attain that, but it kind of drives me to at least try. Yeah. And uh, so my expectation was that I would get the lacquer on. And by the time I was done working with it, that it would be just absolutely impeccable mere just flat as glass, you know, it's just, just perfect, perfect, perfect. And that's absolutely not what happened. And, um, it, there's just little tiny, it basically got some orange peel in it just mm-hmm. a little bit. And I thought I had it flat. Uh, Cause after I wet sand and the whole thing. And I think what happened is that like the little dimples sort of create a vacuum. And um, when I was going over it with, it was like cork with 1500 and 2000 3000 grit uh, paper. I think that it sort of just pulls down into those little depressions Oh, and no. so all the shiny spots completely went away and like i thought oh yeah this is great all i have to do is buff it now but as soon as you buff it and make it like polished you see every single imperfection <laughs> which is why it has a satin finished
0: yeah that's funny i've done just a little so, bit of like furniture spray finishing and, and like cabinet spray finishing and um uh, you know, it's not the same because it doesn't need to look nearly as perfect. But, you know, it can be frustrating, uh, especially if you don't have years of experience or you don't have somebody who's really good at what they do, kind of like looking over your shoulder and giving you tips.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that's totally true. And and I didn't build this thing in a vacuum, right, because there's so much information that's on the Internet. Um, but it's really hard, you know, without some tangible you know, sort of thing that to really understand like how things can go wrong or how you can recover.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, so I, I did get really lucky. There's a luthier, like a real luthier. Um, I definitely am not a luthier, but there's this guy, um, Matt Proctor, who I'm going Brandon right now. What are his guitars called? They're so amazing. But uh, his shop is, just a few blocks from my kid's school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just sent him a message and I was like, Hey, you know, you're a couple blocks from my kid's school. Would it be like, you know, I'm sorry to impose, but it'd be okay if I just kind of came over and just looked at your shop and just talked with you for a little bit, just because I'm just really curious about how all this stuff works and oh, his company is called m tone guitars so oh, cool and if you haven't seen him you should check him out they're absolutely amazing he has all these amazing carvings and like patina copper um he has a bunch of stuff machined like he has this machined aluminum inlay that he does for the neck and they're absolutely amazing but anyways he he invited me over and he you know i i I think i remember being like this when i started building bikes too like calling calling people with more experience and them being extremely patient with me and answering all my stupid questions but um it yeah. was just cool to see the shop and to see how he does things because you know it's like oh yeah this is like the thought process is really similar to how i do things he just has different machines to basically make it all happen mm-hmm. we started talking about business a little bit and uh it seems like the hand built guitar micro industry is exactly like the hand built bike industry.
0: I would not be surprised. Like,
1: <laughs> all the same pitfalls, the same problems, you know, the same challenges. Everyone's trying to market and do their books and you know, everyone's wearing like fifteen different hats and yeah. So it's just it's really funny to, to kind of hear him talk about it a little bit and like, yeah, that, that's exactly my world. It's just a different product.
0: That's funny. Uh, yeah and i think that's a really um incredibly valuable skill or like practice to it's an incredibly valuable action to when you're new to something you know trying to make those connections with people who know what they're doing because yeah like none of us none of us invented any of this or figured it out on our own or to the extent that any right. of us ever do it's it's you know if if you do something enough on your own you'll learn and you'll figure some things out but like the real learning happens when you can pair that personal experience with what you can learn from other people.
1: Totally, totally. And I hope that, uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure, I assume your audience is much broader than just bike builders or aspiring bike builders. But, you know, I definitely want to say that uh, when I started, you know, in Portland at that time, there were several people who were just unbelievably uh, giving with their time, like Andy Newlands of strawberry. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to go to his shop all the time and he was so unbelievably generous and patient, you know, not only with his time, but with his machining knowledge and, but also, you know, he had kind of this great offhanded way of like, you know, I don't know, I don't know anything, but this is how I do it. And he had this cool Mark alignment table. And I think it's his favorite thing in the world. Mm-hmm. to have people want to come over to his shop to use the alignment table. And he'll just like, yep, go ahead, you know, do whatever you want. I'm not touching it. And he's got more than one story of people going over there, mounting their frame up and then reefing on the head tube and just completely buckling, you know, the <laughs> top tube, and down tube, <laughs> you know, and sometimes on fully painted frames with, you know, 800,000 oh um, paint jobs and yeah.
0: That's funny. So he
1: was very, um, he was very supportive in that way. He, he used to let me come over and use the stuff, and you know, I, I'd do my best to clean up after myself, and he'd kind of tell me other things I did wrong. And
2: mm-hmm. but
1: he was also happy just to let you learn on your own and let you screw stuff up using his tools. Yeah. So. You can only wish that everybody could have an experience
0: like that. Yeah, I was always jealous of people who had other frame builders around because I lived in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, and pretty much the middle of nowhere, New York State, in the time that I've been interested in frame building. So I just haven't, I haven't had those uh, those connections in person with people. And since I started going to trade shows, the Philly Bike Expo and NABS, twice or so now. I've gotten to know some more people in person and I've been better at networking with people over the internet and those are valuable too, but it would be really cool to live in a city where you actually had in-person connections with people. uh, Just a really valuable thing. You know, the amount of stuff that you could learn in an hour talking to somebody in the shop and watching them work is huge.
1: Yeah, for sure. and It's good too. You know, I'm sure he'll love this. Uh, Called Jeff. It's Sputnik yeah Um, his tools are amazing His tools are amazing and uh I like I really enjoy his no bullshit attitude about how to get things done
0: yeah yeah I asked him to be on the podcast and he didn't he didn't want to do it at the time that I talked to him but maybe I can uh, warm him up to it so uh I would love to have him on the show I really like Jeff and I like talking to him at the shows
1: yeah. Yeah. Good luck. I hope he does it. Cause he's a wealth of knowledge.
0: He is. Yeah. He's been, he worked at uh what, like a fat, no, not fat city. Did he work? He, he's worked in Boston at a bunch I, of different shops and now he's in Maine and yeah. Yeah. He had his hand on, yeah, it was like fat city and um, independent fabrication and a bunch of those, I think.
1: I think so.
0: And I wanted to ask you, yeah, this leads yeah. in to another question, which is um, a couple of years ago, I know you had an anvil frame fixture and you were sort of trading up or trading to the Sputnik one. And now I like Don Ferris, and I think he's done a really good job with Anvil over the years. Um, But, you know, there's differences between these, and you had experiences. And I was just curious if you wanted to talk about, you know, in your time building bikes with the different frame fixtures that you've used. I imagine you would have used the Arctos a little bit at UBI, and you've used the Anvil, and you've used the Sputnik, and maybe some others. When you're looking at frame fixtures – you know, for the way that you build, at least with, with titanium and, um, you know, you have your back purging and your TIG welding, but regardless, like what are, I mean, you know, cause some people who are looking at like a frame fixture have never you know, looking to buy one or something. They've never used one before. What do you think are some of the strengths and weaknesses generally with different designs?
1: Oh man. Um, well, com- compared with the anvil that I had, which I think maybe was the 3.0 or 3.1 uh, it had, it was all basically like one inch thick mic six plate, the chainstay assembly. Um, it wasn't a direct reading. It was, it, it was like an angular reading. You had to find the, you know, the actual chainstay angle instead of the length and the drop by mm-hmm. record drop. Um, but I honestly, I think any well-made fixture can work. And I think the key is uh, getting to know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And some like little things that probably people don't figure out for 10 bikes or 15 bikes. Like, you know, if you want to compare the Sputnik that I have now versus the Anvil, I think one of, one of the things that I noticed was, you know, you kind of, there's always this temptation to put, one of your loose tubes in place and by loose tubes would be like the down tube or the top tube or, you know, the seat stays um, and the chain stays to some extent, but to put them in place and then to sort of like put them in place under pressure. Mm -hmm. And if you put those things in under pressure, they are going to flex your fixture in some way that, you know, you can, you can predict after you do a bunch, if you, if that's what you do all the time, but if you don't know that it's happening and you're wondering why your frames are coming out crooked,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's why frames are, that's why frames come out crooked is because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of reasons. But one of the things that I think most people probably don't think about is that if you are your chainstays are in, maybe they're even walled up and you slap your seat stays on there and one of them is landing a little bit higher than the other on the back of the seat tube and you make up for it by pressing on it just a little bit.
0: Uh-huh. That's enough now to flex the yeah, yeah. Well, when you and when you push out it in that direction, you have a lot of leverage, actually. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the way that the sort of chainstay arm is built on that anvil, versus the way that the back end of the Sputnik fixture is
2: mm-hmm. built,
1: um, one of those is a lot stiffer than the other. One of them has. Uh, basically the structure is sort of built on the center line of the frame whereas the other one you know it's four inches or six inches off of the center line of the frame
2: mm-hmm.
1: so um, you know the, the Anvil one was a little bit more sexy um, I had to do a couple things to it to really get it to work for me um, uh, but it was great you know I built a bunch of frames on it and it was great it's just that like mine, mine was before he was putting an X scale on it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I get really fiddly about that kind of stuff. Like I, I wanted direct reading, and yeah. you know, I called down and suggested it, and he was like, "No, man, you just minor the, minor the top tube, and then basically slide the head tube back onto that." And I was like, "No, I don't want to do it that way. I want to, I, I want to set up the head tube, and I want to set up the seat tube, and I want to set up the dropouts, and then I want to set everything in place." Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just my method. That's what works best for me. But plenty of people are totally happy of doing it that way. Um, But I always felt like, not that I'm not doing production stuff. So I'm not, you know, like saving a couple of minutes here and there isn't the end of the world. Right. But Mm -hmm. I'd rather just set up up all the stuff in advance, have it all go in perfectly every time without having to fiddle with it that's the same reason I, I used to have the main tube mitering fixture that he made also. And it did a lot of things great and it did some things that I didn't love. So I, I designed my own and made that. And, yeah.
0: I've, and I've, I've studied the f- the photos you have on Flickr of the main tube mitering fixture that you made. And it's, it's really cool. I guess um, it looks like it's based loosely, at least, you know, in terms of construction method, more on the Sputnik design. But I know it's different functionally from a Sputnik. And um, I haven't used the Sputnik enough to know what I would change about it if I I had one. So I guess I'm not, you know, probably some of the finer points of your design are lost on me at this point because I just haven't used one of those enough. But I've studied the photos quite a bit and it's pretty slick. Uh, And then you integrate like a... Six-inch Mitutoyo d- digital caliper into it, which is pretty yeah, cool too. Right, and that's
1: really the big thing. I think uh, I, I've never actually handled this Butnik one, um, and really it was because I just wanted to machine something. You know, I, I had the anvil one. The, the thing that I didn't like about the anvil was, or there, there were two things. One of them was it had those like those interlocking jaws, and um, um, I felt like maybe it was just my fixture, uh, but it never held the tubes rigidly enough. I, I had to make uh, like Delrin mandrels that I had to stick inside every single tube when I cut it so that mm-hmm. the tube wouldn't flex under the the pressure of those two jaws.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, cause it would change the shape of the miter a little bit. Yeah, And um, you know, so the miters weren't perfect and you know, it just feels like with titanium, cause you're doing a fusion pass and you do a pass over top of it. But the, with the fusion pass, it just goes so unbelievably easy if your miters are perfect
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: if you if you have like a two or three foul gap here and there you know sometimes you can get away with actually like melting that but sometimes you'll just you know you can keep the tube open if if like things are going easy and you're not paying attention and all of a sudden you're like oh man there's a teeny tiny hole in there um so if they're perfect it's it's like you can almost close your eyes and weld the two tubes together and you know everything's right um, and so with those jaws, putting pressure on the tube like that, it was changing the shape of the miter. And I, I was using the strawberry cutters at the time, which are these really nice ground cutters, mm-hmm. but the the blade is so thick and they had so much cutting pressure that sometimes they would twist the tube and it would grenade the cutter. And, uh, it was just a really sort of sad, expensive time wow. that happened. Um, <laughs> And the other thing was, too, that I didn't like having to draw scrab lines on the frame. It just seemed like a total waste of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and I had I have a meter stick, and so I'm trying to get it to the closest millimeter. But, you know, with the different angles of the top and the down tube and just mm-hmm. me being kind of, like, really wound up tight about this sort of stuff, um, you know, if you have a twenty foul error in the length of a tube, it makes a difference oh, yeah. on the frame. Yeah. Especially in the down tube. So it makes a difference where it lands and all of a sudden, you know, if it's a little bit short, it lands a little bit too far down on the head tube and then you, it opens up underneath and you know, it's all this, There's just a chain yeah. of things that happens. That's not the end of the world, but I just figured that if it doesn't have to happen, why allow it to? Yeah. So I, I made my own thing definitely based off the of Sputnik. Um, I even use the same clamp that Jeff uses mm-hmm. uh, and it's, it's mostly cool, but um, the, I think the only, well, the other than the, the way that I get the length of the tube on there, because the concept is the same. The idea is to just have a center-to-center length on any one of the tubes mm-hmm. with the the center of the rotary table and the center of the cutter always in line with one another. Mm-hmm. That way, you don't have to make any scribe lines. You just throw the tube in there, set up the, the tube block in the back for the right center length, and then you know set the angle on your rotary table and cut it and that's it yeah and i think the 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 biggest difference other than the way that i clamp the tubes or the direction of them is uh i think that he's got this little like offset calculator for the tube blocks that he uses and i just machined everything so that it pivots on center yeah and you don't have to do any, like, use a calculator sheet.
0: To yeah. Figure I think uh, in BikeCAD, it includes some of the phase block stuff so that you can at least use yeah. BikeCAD directly. I had an idea for a main tube miter fixture that will probably never see the light of day now because I don't think that it needs to, but I thought it was kind of clever. It was like, you know, um, when, when, the, when the tube rotates on the center point of, like, a rotary table, uh, then yeah. regardless of the angle, you can have the cutter... Uh, you know, the center line of the cutter and the center line of the tube intersect. And you can change the angle by cranking the handle of the rotary table. It doesn't change the length of your miter uh, right. center to center, which is really cool. But um, sometimes that complicates things depending on the configuration of it. And it's really pretty simple math if you know the distance off of the, um, the the center point of rotation, how far the tube is. And so I asked Brent at Bike Hat, I said, you know, if I developed a tool and there was a known distance away from the center line... And, and you know, yeah. you could plug in the information. Could you make it so that from the model of the bike, the user could get the specific coordinates that needed to miter the tube? And he said, oh, yeah, that'd be easy if you gave me the formula. And so I had this idea that I was going to make a tool, but I can see now that it's just, it's not worth it. But I thought it was kind of cool. It's like yeah. it's really very simple trigonometry. If you built it into uh, oh, the yeah. app that you were already using to tell you the miter length, it would really be pretty oh. painless to integrate
1: you know that's really funny because maybe a month or two ago, um, I asked Brent a very similar question.
0: <laughs> Brent um, is great; he's because, so accessible.
1: Oh yeah, and that program—it's worth so much more than we pay for it.
0: Yeah, I always say that. Yeah, you know, with
1: the with the free upgrades, uh, it's amazing. It's it's an absolutely fantastic tool. It's worth every penny to pay for it and more. Yeah. Um and the fact they continually updates it, the fact that he listens to us and you know will include things that we request. And yeah. I, I think maybe I didn't do a very good job of communicating what I wanted, but because um, I I offset the down tube on the bottom. I use a lot of two inch bottom brackets. I, I still do a lot of press fit shells because mm-hmm. I have no problems with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I do primarily mountain bikes, you know, I do all kinds of like really weird mountain bikes, so most of the bikes i go have just crazy short stays. So I do, I make, I turn my own custom bottom brackets and they're often really wide, but anyway, I, I offset the down tube on the bottom bracket. So the bottom of the down tube is essentially tangent with the O.D. Yeah. of the shell. Yep. And then I do the same thing with the c I, you know, I do bent C-tubes and I bias them towards the back of the shell so that the back of the C-tube is tangent. Mm-hmm. And um so doing that third cut on the down tube for the C tube has always been something that I have to scribe. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, there's I can do this with math. And yeah. so I I did the trig, I figured it all out, and I made a spreadsheet so that I can put in the mitre angle, the down tube offset, seat tube offset, and it basically spits out what I need to adjust on the x-axis of the mill to to get that cut in the right spot. That's awesome. So I I got on Brent's forum and I was like, hey Brent, you know, this might be a problem specific to me, but you know, I'd be really cool if I could just get this offset off of the drawing. And uh, he was not into it.
2: <laughs>
1: and <laughs> I I think probably I I I really think maybe I just didn't present it correctly or didn't like the formula, Yeah, well, the formula
0: works. Yeah, I think actually that, um, yeah, I'll talk to him when I see him at Philly Bike Expo because when I did in the YouTube channel where I'm building a mountain bike, I did all those things you're explaining where I I biased the down tube so that it's pretty much tangent with the bottom bracket shell and the seat tube, and and then when it came time to do that sort of notch between the seat tube and the down tube, um, for a number of reasons, uh, I didn't really have a good way. To go about that and so you know i demonstrated what you would do with hand files if that's what you were doing but but i was yeah. realizing i was like this is this is really if i was going to build mountain bikes on any regular basis uh in my shop i would want a number i would want to be able to pull a number and just you know hey, measure dude. measure once cut once sort of thing yeah and uh and i didn't have a way to do that exactly and so uh i'm you know between the two of us we, we couldn't be the only ones doing that so
1: i'm sure we're not yeah but you know especially on that cut because you only want to cut that once yeah because there's not enough support there so if you try to go back in and do it you have basically cut away a really important section of tube that's giving you support against folding that thing you know when the when the cutter catches you know near the corner
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so that that particular cut is definitely one that you only want to do one time yeah
0: well, well, I got I got one more question I want to throw in real quick, and then we should wrap it up. And uh, it's about press fit bottom brackets because uh, yeah. so so on this mountain bike build series where I'm making a bike, I used the press fit 41 standard. So it's inch and a half or no, it's inch and three quarter outside diameter bottom bracket shell and steel, and it's for the yeah. the BB 92 or BB 86 Shimano standard. I think is what it's called. But anyway, you uh, actually use. A press fit um, BB30, so it's like a 46 millimeter nominal inside diameter on the cup uh, on quite a few of your yep. bikes. And so, yeah, like in the bike industry, it's very pervasive, especially among maybe Luddites and people who like steel bikes and frame builder types. But I think a lot of people feel this way that threaded bottom bracket shells are just easier to deal with. It's maybe like a lower bar of entry to get a good result or something there's maybe a lower requirement on the tolerance for the manufacturer so like in the real world it plays out a little bit easier there's a there's a bunch of things going on there but you feel like in your experience you have not had issues with doing press fit and so yeah that's interesting you like tell us about that
1: uh yeah i mean i just i think (laughs) i was just saying honestly I have a lot to say about it. I'm just trying to figure out like what the best (laughs) approach to talking about it is. Um, If one of my customers has had a problem with one, I haven't heard about it. And, uh, and that's not to say that nobody has it, but even on my, I I think I have maybe five of my own bikes have them on there and I've never had an issue with it. Mm -hmm. I think if it's prepared correctly, you know, the idea being that those two bores are, as close to perfectly concentric as you can possibly get, mm-hmm. and it's been faced correctly, and the tolerance is right, then there's just no issue. But I I do understand, you know, if you have to remove it, then you know that's a huge pain in the butt because you're gonna knock it out of there, and you're probably gonna destroy something in the process. But, um, you know, I I've had fantastic luck with Chris King bearings, mm-hmm. um, and they stopped making press fit bottom brackets just in the last few months. So that's Uh a big bummer, but, but you know, with their grease tool, um, if they do get kind of funky, it's pretty easy to pop the seals off of them, just, you know, shoot a bunch of goo into it and, you know, close it back up and it's good to go. Um, So, but if you, I mean, if you really drill down and you think about all the different products that are on the market, you know, why PressFit came to be uh, like those carbon reinforced nylon cups that, that Shimano and SRAM made, which are just awful. Um, I totally see why they have, you know, people don't want them Mm -hmm. because they think they're bad. And my favorite bicycle tech writer, uh, James Wang, he hates them and just rails on them all the time. And I, you know, I I get it because coming from, if you look at it from the mass production kind of standpoint, where they're trying to get frames out out of that out of each process as quickly as possible. You know, they're not really giving the care to make sure that the bottom bracket is perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, they stick it on a machine, someone, you know, pulls a lever and basically rings it and then they move it on. So I understand. um, But honestly, if, if they're done right, they're very reliable. You know, I don't have bearing alignment issues. Um, It's no problem. And unlike, you know, I really want to like the T47, and I think regardless of what my preference is, I probably need to take a good look at that going forward. Mm-hmm. But at least early on, I knew at least a dozen people who broke taps in them mm-hmm. on tie frames. Yeah, and
0: I still and hear about have... that from time to time.
1: Yeah, right. And then now you have a $200 tap stuck in a $3,500 frame. Yeah. And uh, that's never happened to me with reaming it for press
0: yeah. Do you um, use the park I, tool reamers or how do you ream it?
1: I, um, Chris King sent me one. Uh, and I don't know if they ever made them to production or not, but um, if you don't know Oscar Camarena, uh you maybe should talk to him because he he's a really, really smart frame builder. He's built a lot of frames that you've definitely heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe if you're not aware, he's building a lot of people's bikes. Um, but he used to be an employee at Chris King. He was kind of he was building all the CLOs, and he he um, J.C. Sip pretty well, going back a long time. And uh, you know, I I became friends with Oscar a bunch of years ago, and I think maybe it was through Oscar when King started making some stuff. You know, since since they're here in town, every once in a while they'll call me in and say hey we have this thing you want to try it out and that pf PS, uh pf30 reamer was one of his things so oh cool i'm, I'm very lucky to have a a king pf30 reamer. yeah which works amazingly well
0: yeah that's cool man it's i think it's always cool to get that um i don't know maybe it's not that big of a deal but it's kind of cool sometimes to get like a, a special thing like that that it's like oh you can't get that anywhere like they never made it you know it's i don't know Uh, You get a or a tool that has a story, you know, like in the, in the CNC world, you know, I have friends who have bought CNC machines that were used in some, you know, NASA laboratory or something or I don't know. It's just cool cool stuff that has like a special story or some background or whatever uh, to it. And uh,
1: yeah, I, Chris Idleheart has this, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's this massive disc and I, I I, was in the because 'cause I'm um, Joseph Ahern is a buddy of mine and him and Chris Eichelhart share a shop and I was in there a bunch of years ago. And I was like, What is that thing in front of your bridgeport? And he's like, Oh, that's my step stool and I thought, well, What? Like some really fancy step stool And he was like, Oh, you know, when I was working for FAT or IF or whoever it was way, way back, um, he said it was in the trash behind uh Oh man, it's like some huge—I don't know if it's GPL. Like some big aerospace company in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. He's like, it was just in the trash. It was a—it was a fixture to hold nose cones for—for um, for some kind of a missile. <laughs> it was just in the like in the trash heap. So I took it, and it's been—that's how I reached the jaw bar on my on my bridge park. That's funny. Yeah, he's got a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that's cool, man. I, I really appreciate you being on the, being on the call and doing the interview. I think that sort of exhausted the, the list of questions that I put together. Um, you know, you got a an interesting history with uh, some of the, you know, the, the way that you took a class and being involved in uh, in the headset development and a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we didn't even touch on that I'm unaware of, but you you had your hand on a lot of cool bikes that I, I always liked looking at the mountain bikes you made and uh you do a lot of like little tools and different things and uh I can relate to that sort of um desire to make and modify every little thing that that you're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh thanks for being on the show man and uh and uh hope to see you at a at a trade show or something at some point in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was great talking with you and uh one of these years I'd like to get out and do the Philly Expo. I hear it's a really great show.
0: Yeah, it's terrific. It's terrific. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, yeah, talk soon.
1: All right. Thanks a lot, Joe.